you're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. We're back and today the Lodestar podcast gaze falls upon Europe, war, COVID, inflation, a cost of living crisis, strike actions by unions multiplying faster than UK prime ministers and acting with far less caution than your average German chancellor. None of this is good for those economic and trading forecasts. But amid the debris of what was once called GDP growth, there are some green shoots that a softer soul than yours truly might even deem worthy of optimism. Today, we'll be discussing everything from post-COVID clear-up to container terminals to line-up blanks and 2023 alliance strategy. We're looking at the macroeconomic picture and we'll even delve into the ongoing drag on trade that is Brexit. We've also got air cargo rates, shipping rates, even better, we've got the Lodestar's Mike Wackett and Axel Matern, Chief Executive of Port of Hamburg Marketing. And last but not least, we've got the CEO of the Port of Dover, Doug Bannister. We are so tightly correlated with economic prosperity through the Port of Dover. The supply chains that we support with this gateway, it includes everything, manufacturing, perishables, foods, commodities, medicines, they all come through here. So one of the things that we found is when there's an economic downturn, certainly we feel it, perhaps not as sharply as other routes, but we do feel it. But then when there's an economic upturn, we feel it faster here probably than other routes as well. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Greetings, one and all. And just briefly, please do subscribe, follow, review and like this podcast. We're available on all major platforms and on thelodestar.com, where you can sign up to have each episode delivered direct to your inbox. Today, our attention turns to Europe and particularly the shipping and port sector. And we have some great interviews and insights coming your way, which I really do think illustrate just how integral ports and their hinterlands are to the general European economy. And the reason I say that is because what's going on at those ports, at those gateways to these economies, offers a clear view of some of the wider economic and geopolitical forces facing any region or country. And Europe is certainly facing plenty of challenges. We've had two years of COVID-driven demand at the port of Dover, the UK's biggest truck and ferry gateway. This has been overlaid by the additional complications of Brexit, which has created a whole series of challenges, as we'll hear later when I'm joined by port CEO Doug Bannister. European economies are also being rocked by war in Ukraine, soaring inflation, rising interest rates and strikes by unions. Nomura now expects Western Europe's real GDP to contract by 0.4% this year. In Germany and Britain, the two large economies most affected by current economic headwinds, real GDP is expected to contract by 0.8% and 0.7% respectively. Meanwhile, consumer prices in Western Europe rose 8.5% last year and are expected to increase a further 5.9% this year. Overall, as starts to the year go, it's not exactly blooming with optimism. But there are green shoots too. The latest inflation figures for the UK and the Eurozone suggested some subsidence in late 2022. 
albeit from historical highs. We'll be hearing about what all this means for shipping lines and that critical Asia-Europe trade when I'm joined by the Lodestar shipping reporter Mike Wackett later on. But first up, let's look at these issues from the perspective of one of Northern Europe's most significant hubs and also the largest port in Germany. I'd like to welcome Axel Matern, Chief Executive of Port of Hamburg Marketing. Hello, Axel. Hello, Mike. Thank you for joining me. Axel, these economic and political challenges hit your throughput last year with East Asia trade lower year on year and Baltic traffic contracting quite rapidly due to Russian sanctions through the first few months. Although you did see growth in other parts of the Baltics, including Poland. Did you see similar trends in the fourth quarter? And do you expect this to continue in 2023, given the outlook for the German economy and the ongoing war in, in Ukraine? So that's, that's a very good question, Mike. We had a year behind us, which was uh, extraordinary. And with the war, with the COVID, with all these supply chain disruptions you have seen around in the world. And due to all these figures, I, I think we managed quite okay uh, so that the throughput and the volumes of cargo handling went down during the year due to all these different reasons was actually uh, for us and for the logistics and for the supply chain disruptions within the chain, quite of relief, quite kind of relief there. And we expect that this is going to be on that level now, which we have reached now. The liner operators are cutting down the capacity in their liner services. That's what we see right now, that they are taking out some ships out of the liner services in order to fit it to the demand and to optimize the liner services right now. So that's what we expect for the next year. Difficult year, of course. But at the end of the day, maybe as well uh, a chance to ease up the supply chain difficulties we have. Axel, as a, a port, can you explain a little bit about how you plan for this recessionary and in inflationary outlook that we have at the moment? Do you get feedback from your terminal operators, from carriers, from port users about what their expectations are for the coming months or year? I'm just trying to understand how you've been able to switch from high demand expectations of the COVID years to this new scenario. I mean, we're, we're of course, uh, talking about significant drop down of handling of cargo, but as being part of the logistic world situation, we have just have to be prepared of what is happening right? and we can't change it. We can't change the world economy. We can't change the demand. And so we have to be prepared. And that's what we also have learned from the last three years, I would say. I mean, we had the COVID things and so on and so on. We had a lot to learn and that's something which has to be fixed now. We have to be prepared. Everybody is, all the terminal operators, all the liner operators and the port itself as the infrastructure provider is moving forward. We are not starting now. We have done that the last 25 years to go into digitalization, automation, and all these things. And what we have on top of that, what we have learned in addition, not new, but what was more than vital for all these operational things is communication and information exchange. And that's something which was 
dramatically shown in these kind of high demand things we had the last couple of months and years. So that's something when we are now dramatically trying to work on to figure that out, to have more information from the line operators to the terminal operators to the hinterland operators. That's what the ports are talking about because we are these kind of hub situation where everybody is in a big bubble. And that's the most important thing to uh, have this communication, this information flow better in a better way. And are you finding you're getting all your stakeholders on board for this process? Yeah, that's what we are, of course, doing since years and years. But uh, the demand from the market to get these things better, to have more information in order to be prepared to offer the right interland operational offers and so on. That's something which was really to be seen in the last three years, I would say. So with this high density of cargo handling and this shifting of cargo demands and you had different containers, uh, for example, the container. We had a lot of container on in the right direction or in the, not in the right direction. And this is something we have to learn. We have to communicate. We have to exchange between the liner operators the information. We have to get early enough the information, what's on the ship, where this cargo might go, in which way is it going on a, on a train or on a truck or on a barge or whatever. That's something we really have to work on. And, and that's dramatically shown in the last couple of years now. So European ports and shipping is now ready for the next pandemic, is, or, is, or is it just no, it is. it is. No, no, that they, we have learned a lot and we are prepared. I mean, that's, that's what we are learning every day and, and everybody is working on that. And finally, we're just in the middle of our new port development plan right now, which will be published in April, I guess, April, May, to the Munich Fair. I guess that's the time where we have it. And this planning is also answering a lot of questions in that respect. How to develop port? I mean, the future, I mean, we had dramatically changes due to the war, for example. We have a new energy consumption, demand. For example, for Germany, we, we are cut off the gas pipelines from Russia, and now we have to get gas from wherever. That's also touching ports, absolutely. And so... The port itself has to be prepared as well. We will have more and more cargo handling due to this energy transition process, which we will have the next couple of years. And so the ports need to be flexible. And that's not the thing where ports are known for, because infrastructure in ports is something which is a long lasting and a very long planning phase thing. And this has to be changed right now because of the situation itself, where we are in as a nation, as Europe is changing so dramatically so that we have to react on that and to be prepared. How has that switched in the German economy from reliance on gas imports to finding any means possible to replace gas imports from Russia? How is that affecting you guys on a practical level day to day at the port or in terms of meeting the wider economic requirements for Germany? So it's, it's interesting to see that the overall economic figures from Germany are not really getting in any direction, which would have been expected, maybe, uh, due to this drastical change here. But that's interesting to see that, for example, 
to replace the gas from the pipeline, we have in an unbelievable short time made a planning for FSRUs and receiving LNG gas from the outside being imported via FSIU um, ships on, on the coast into the national grid, which nobody would have expected before that this is possible at all. And now we have already, I mean, we have the war started in February, so it's not even one year ago. And we have already six FSIUs either already in running or just before finishing and which are able to cover more than 10% of the national demand of gas. And that's just within a couple of months. So that's quite impressive, I would say, for, for a slow-acting country like Germany. <laughs> it's been quite a turnaround on that energy mix. If I may turn you from, I guess, the strategic to the operational, one of the things that really struck me and, and many people in our industry during those uh, the COVID years when we had these import spikes was how quickly bottlenecks built up around ports, whether at the docks or in the hinterland, just because of that demand spike. Is this slowdown in demand helping you clear boxes and free up space at your terminals and, and yards? And, and are you, I guess, more practically, are you seeing more lines turning up on schedule? Unfortunately, it's not that easy. Yes, of course. Less cargo handling is, of course, uh, putting you in a situation that you can <laughs> clean up a bit and rearrange uh, the processes. But we have, together with that, it was a change, not only a change that we have more cargo, that we have more cargo, it was also a change that we have more cargo in different directions. So before COVID, for example, we had a totally leveled import and export percentage, and it was going absolutely smoothly. So especially hinterland transportation by train is working quite easily when you have the same cargo going in and out. So that changed in COVID over these three years. Totally. You have a lot of containers in areas where you don't need them. And then you have a lot of non-containers where you need them. And this is causing some bigger questions. So you need a lot more containers in the system in order to get it running. And you need a lot more organizing structure behind it and things like that. So that's something which the liner operators and which the interland operators and also the terminal operators are now reviewing and putting in, in a new system as well, because that was not possible during these couple of years where you had just to fight for how to handle the stuff and how to survive. I'm pretty sure that the liner services are getting more and more in, in a more scheduled and, and more reliable liner system again, and especially due to the fact that they are taking out some capacity. So that's, that's better. And as I said, we are learning every day. And one of these things is information exchange, and that is getting better and better and better. And that has been shown that this is absolutely necessary, this um, so-called supply chain visibility. And this is really important. Everybody was talking about it before, but now everybody knows, you know, we really need it. And there are a lot of players in the chain, which have to move a little bit because there were a lot of players in the supply chain, which are not really willing to change information. It's not a technical problem. 
Okay. Axel, you mentioned the the change in the import-export mix a little bit there. One of the um, the bedrocks of the success of the German economy over the last decade or two has been its ability of manufacturers to plug into export markets. And one of those key markets is China, which plays a big part in your container mix. We are around a third of all containers imported or export are from China, the world's second largest economy. We've seen China essentially open back up for business by relaxing its COVID rules and the last few weeks expected to boost demand and economic growth there. Are you expecting an export boost because China is really that critical export market for you? No, we are not expecting a boost. (laughs) That's interesting to see how it goes in the next couple of weeks or months because Right now, what I mean, we have an office in China as well. And what I'm hearing from my colleagues in Shanghai, there's nothing really moving right now. They have really have to fight with the COVID situation in the country where the COVID is running through the country and the manufacturers and the ports and the truck drivers in China, they are not back again. I mean, that's something which we have to see. And then the demand from the European market is still on a very, very low level. So due to this recession and, and things, so everybody's very reluctant to buy and to consume. And this is something which we expect will be throughout 23. So the full year. So I don't expect any boosts, not an import and not an export. Actually. And uh, that relationship with China, it's been a bit of a political hot potato in, in recent years, particularly in terms of Chinese investment in European infrastructure, Costco seems to be close to signing off an agreement to purchase a sizable stake in HHLA, your largest terminal operator. From a wider port perspective, does this, as HHLA have said, simply strengthen that supply chain link between Germany and China? Certainly, that's how it is. We are working with all liner operators together, of course, and they are coming from wherever. But one of the biggest and most important markets is China. But not only Costco is transporting cargo from China to Europe, so that are the others as well. So it's not China cargo depending on Costco. So that's a different situation in that. But like in other ports as well, liner operators want to be part of the terminal operation. They want to have a kind of a hand on, on this because they are bringing the complete business to the terminals. And in the case of Costco and the Toller Off Terminal, one of the terminals in the port of Hamburg, Costco is their customer since 40 years. And since 30 years, they want to buy part of the terminal, of course. And um, this was a very long lasting discussions. And we are very happy that this is gone now finally, hopefully shortly being confirmed. We're just waiting for the last signature from Berlin. Everything else is being discussed and agreed on. So this is putting Hamburg just in the situation that we can concentrate again on operational stuff, stuffs, and that we can just continue together with Costco in that respect and this terminal to even make a future investment, to have a look into the future, to be better and more prepared and have a better communication system, maybe together to be more successful. And and that's what we are really looking for and where we are 
happy that this is going to be the case. And yes, it's a hot potato, but only in politics. It's not in the, in the area of port business or shipping or supply chain business. No one was concerned about this kind of investment. You're staying well out of politics. Axel, you've said previously, just as we look forward a little bit, that you're still expecting more supply chain disruption either this year, next year. Where do you see that risk as being most acute? Is it driver shortages? Is it a return of COVID perhaps? Is it obviously there's a war in Europe? We've got the shipping lines. No one really knows exactly what their strategy is for the for the rest of this year in this downturn. And maybe it's a return of strikes to German ports that we had last year. Uh, we don't expect the, the unions and the strikes. I think that's being solved now. And I'm pretty sure they have enough salary now. But of course, you always have other things which can happen, of course, which we don't know yet. And to what we still have, like the war, for example, that is, of course, interfering in the system. And of course, we are more prepared. We are now prepared to face this kind of situation. But uh, you always have to be open for other things may happen. But I'm pretty happy about how we as port and how the terminal operators and, and also the line operators are and in which status they are right now. And I'm pretty happy that we are prepared as a port and uh, especially also the, the hinterland operators from Port of Hamburg, which is more than 50% by rail. There's a lot of competence and professionality in that respect. So I'm looking forward in a very positive way to this year and then to the years to come. Well, we'd like to have an optimist on this podcast, Axel. Axel Maten, Chief Executive of Port of Hamburg Marketing. Thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast today. Thank you. Fascinating, that wasn't it? Getting that insight into German logistics and operations and strategizing at the biggest port in what is Europe's largest economy. And I would now like to bring in Mike Wackett, the Lodestar's shipping and port expert, to discuss some of those points. Hello, Mike. Hello there, Mike. And nice to be here again. Always great to have you along. Mike, we heard from Axel Matern at the Port of Hamburg that 2023 is a year of consolidation and preparation after the chaos of the COVID years. And as Europe braces for recession and that this inflation bites, but can we have a look at this from the liner shipping side, if we may? Firstly, can you tell me how those uh, Asia Europe spot and contract rates have been performing so far this year? Really, they've gone to a stage now. I think they're scraping along at the bottom, really. I mean, Zenith's North European component was down something like about 3% this week at 1,822 per 40 foot. There are cheaper rates in the market, but I think We've got a stage now where carriers are sort of balking at going any further because they're effectively already into the sub-economic levels. And of course, they're really quite concerned of the impact that will have on contract rates. A lot of the contracts for Europe have just been put on the back burner, basically, because um, where do you start on this one? You're coming from a, a massive high to this low in terms of spot rates. Everybody wants that get some sort of happy medium really there. So yeah, I think we're at this level. I mean, as we're seeing carriers are just going from week to week, looking at how much capacity they might need. And 
And that calculation is changing by the day almost with more and more blankings hitting the market. So we're talking third week of January, Mike. So the last few weeks, we've not seen any, any sort of boost for Chinese New Year. No, no, there's, there was a little, what I heard, there was a little bit of an uptick this week, as you would normally expect quite a big boost before Chinese New Year, but just a little bit of an uptick. But effectively, that suggests that after the holidays are over, then in the normal slack period, it will be even worse than usual. So I think really now carriers are, are fearing that there's really going to be such a soft demand after the Chinese New Year. And really, they're having to prepare themselves for that with, with a lot more blankets and maybe even service suspensions. And of course, we've heard on this podcast before that a lot of those factories aren't actually going to open right back up after the Chinese New Year holidays in February. So be, that'll be something to keep an eye on. I was talking to the guys at TAC Index and sort of a similar picture for Air Cargo. The Baltic Air Freight Index in the week to 16th of January is the last week that we've got figures for. We're still talking about a year-on-year -year decline of almost 27% in the overall index. Just as we're hitting Chinese New Year, Shanghai was a little bit firmer, Hong Kong slipped, but we've still got these high fuel prices, which are keeping some of those all-in rates a little bit higher, but we've got a bit more capacity coming into that market. However, they did tell me, and I quote here, that the sources in China are expecting a better second half of the year as China opens up. Now, on those China-Europe lanes, overall, again, as, we, as we're hitting Chinese New Year, they're down 22%. Shanghai-Europe is down a little bit less, 16%. But that Asia-Europe route is a lot healthier than the Trans-Pacific route, where those losses have been a bit more significant. More generally, if we're looking at this export outlook, Nomura's leading index of Asia, ex-Japan's agri-exports, or the Nelly, which we've quoted a few times on this podcast previously, that's really dropped again. It's down to its lowest level since the global financial crisis. So that, that Asia downturn for exports is not over yet, it would seem. Nomura citing inventory overhang, dampened demand from Europe and US, the, these normal things that we've been hearing a lot about. But they were also expecting a second half bounce back. So going to be an interesting year. Mike, back to shipping. How are lines reacting to this? market that we're seeing in these gloomy forecasts, certainly for the first half of the year. Are we going to see more blanks? Should we expect this to continue? I think they, they will do whatever's necessary, Mike. What we've seen is, I think the first seven weeks, over 50 blank sailings from Asia to Europe. Effectively, that's somewhere in the region of 30% of the sailings have been cut or skipped. That's all they can do really until the I mean, everybody's looking at the restocking that will hopefully happen and maybe inflation starts to come down, which will renew the appetite for the North European or European consumer to start spending again. Really, they're looking at that and they're looking at some sort of rebound and particularly into the second half, as you mentioned there, Mike, and obviously for the peak season. That's really what they're putting all of their money on. The fact that there will be that rebound at some stage, because ultimately, as we've seen before, stock will go and eventually new orders will come in. So eventually there will be an uptick, whether it's sufficient. And given that we've got so much extra capacity coming on, 
like 2.3 million TU that's coming into the market this year. That's really going to be quite a challenging period for these shipping lines to manage their capacity. Sticking with uh, Europe, Mike, how is that business on the transatlantic holding up? It's been a bright spot for trade, for liner shipping this last year or so, even as we've seen demand and rates collapse elsewhere. Yeah, it has. I mean, it's quite an interesting trade, really, because it has always been quite a robust trade, quite balanced as well. And it was very, very slow. I mean, the Asian trades, the rates boomed very quickly during the pandemic. But going back to 21, I mean, a 40-foot rate from, say, Liverpool to New York was still around about $2,000. We are around about $6,000, both for spot and also for contracts. And there is an erosion, but it is slight and it's nowhere near the erosion that we've seen on the Asian export trades. Whether that continues is, is another question because the carriers have put on a lot of extra capacity. We've had a few new entrants into the scene as well, and eventually that could have a bearing. And so we'll be watching that one very closely indeed. But at the moment, it's the one bright spot really for the carriers. We're going to hear from the port of Dover a bit later. Obviously, that's critical to intra-European cargo flows by ferry and truck especially on that Brexit-impacted UK-EU trade. How would you say that UK liner ports are faring now, though? Are they clearing out those excess boxes that we saw through the peak demand years during COVID lockdowns? Or are we still seeing delays at places like Felixstowe and Liverpool for drivers and these congested terminals? Absolutely not. It's transformed totally. Driving down the A12 the other day over the Orwell Bridge, you can see several cranes boomed up at Felixstowe. Their main problem now is this mountain of empty containers that they have on their terminals because those empty containers are no longer needed back in Asia. But in terms of congestion, there's no congestion. There's no congestion in Felixstowe, in Southampton or London Gateway. The problems normally are to do with weather, which is quite normal for the winter. And I think that's what I saw the other day, a couple of reports from the carriers seems to be quite the same around the continent. Congestion has eased massively and they're now just waiting for ships again. So ships are getting worked on arrival speedily. There's no delays on the land sides, plenty of haulage around. So normalization has arrived. And my, what's the situation at these UK box ports? We had these strikes last year they all out the way or are we still looking at UK or even European supply chains seeing more and more disruption as this cost of living crisis bites? We, we heard there from Axel that the German ports have sorted themselves out. Felix though sorted themselves out. Liverpool sorted themselves out. There doesn't seem to have been any problem at all at the DP World, London Gateway and Southampton terminals. So I think there's a mixture of Having done those deals and perhaps seeing demand fall down a little bit, maybe there's less likely to, to be strikes than there might have been before. You sound quite optimistic about the future there, Mike. Is, are all these disruptions out of the way then, are they? Well, they seem to be. I mean, really, I think if you take out that much capacity of that many ships and, and the ships start arriving on time as well, then from a port's point of view, that's good. Although, of course, there will no doubt be seeing there throughput through the terminals uh, come down quite considerably. 
Mike Wackett, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. You problem so, Mike. I'd now like to welcome someone to the Lodestar podcast who you might say has had possibly more than his fair share of disruption to deal with these past years and facing a similar intimidating amount of headwinds as we look forward. It's Doug Bannister, CEO at the Port of Dover. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast, Doug. Yeah, hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Doug, so the Port of Dover, it's the UK's busiest international ferry port. And, and I think I've got this right. You guys handle more driver company trucks than all other UK ports put together and something like a third of all UK EU trade. Just for some context, can you give our global listeners some idea of how that looks in terms of number of ferries, number of trucks you turn around each day, week, year? And also maybe tell us a little bit about some of the supply chains that depend on that channel link via Dover to and from the EU. Yeah, well, so first of all, the, the Port of Dover has been here for probably 2,000 years, I think, since the Romans first came to Britain. And it's been a key point, a key artery for trade between the continent and the United Kingdom for that period of time. And that's down to our geographic proximity. Now, how that translates is we do two, two and a half million trucks every year. We do two, two and a half million tourist vehicles. We do coaches. We do caravans, we do horse trailers, we do uh, motorcycles, bicycles, everything comes through this board. And it's all about that scale. Now we do that. We've got three ferry operators here serving Dover and then two ports in France, Calais and Dunkirk. And between those three ferry operators, we have 130 ferry crossings each day. Now, if I put that in a macro term, we facilitate 144 billion pounds of trade between the UK and Europe every year. So what's that? Three billion a week. And it all comes down to the, the significant supply chains that we offer. And in fact, I'd also say that not only are we the busiest international ferry port in the UK, but also in Europe, certainly by measuring of the number of vessel movements that we have. I think by any measurement, Doug, that's, that's a lot of traffic. You've got very, very tight turnarounds on that, I presume. Um, and I know the port of Dover, and I know you lack overflow space in your hinterland. So presumably it doesn't take a lot of disruption to cause snarl-ups either at the terminal or on those roads leading into Dover. We've seen a bit of that this year. What's been happening? Can you explain what's been going on this year, perhaps? Well, first, let me tell you about our turnaround that we have. So our ferry terminal, as an example, a ferry will come in, the ramp will go down, we'll discharge 100, 150 trucks, a couple hundred cars, 1,000 passengers, and reload that same amount. And we'll turn that ferry around in 45 minutes. Each of our ferries completes five round voyages every day. We turn our bursts over 10 times a day. We turn our land capacity over six times a day. It is an incredibly efficient operation. That means, though, however, that while we have all that efficiency and the inbuilt resilience that frequency brings, that we are using our assets very intensively. And the moment the flow stops, then that means that we have some challenges coming through in, in the traffic disruption that we have. The whole ethos of this place is about traffic fluidity. And so when we look at capacity, we don't look at how much space we've got on the ground. We look at our operating system, which includes the trucks, the ferries, the roads, everything. So if I can squeeze a couple of seconds off of every transaction, I improve my capacity, certainly my utilization. As an example, many people on your podcast might think in container terms. 
So trailers are a little bit bigger than a shipping container. We do, in TEU terms, about five and a half million TEU. And we do that on a footprint of just 40 hectares. Now, for you guys having to look around in your terminals, you'll see that that's an incredibly tight place to operate from. And that's a good illustration of just how productive and how efficient and how important it is that the traffic continues to flow. The amount of trucks that we do every day, maybe up to 10,000, that would be something like 120 miles worth of trucks every day that we process through this port. And that means that it's got to keep moving. We do have some challenges in terms of just general things like whether there's road congestion or weather affecting our ferries, indeed EU regulation or border control processes. But one thing that we have found is that when we do have a bit of disruption, because of our frequency and our overall capacity, we can clear disruption faster than anywhere else. And we get back to normal operations very, very swiftly. And what's been causing those disruptions this year? Can you just briefly explain? Well, there's been a couple of events this year that have caused a bit of disruption. One is, um, well, three things I'll highlight. At the beginning of the year, we had our full customs checks come into force, and that meant that the industry needed to get accustomed with the paperwork and that sort of stuff. And that slowed things down. By the end of the year, that had all been solved because people have become accustomed to how the forms work and all that sort of stuff. Around in March time, we had about 30% of our ferry capacity go offline for a period after P&O restructured the way in which they were manning their ferries. And that led to a bit of disruption, but we were able to manage through all of that. And then finally, a unique thing about the Port of Dover is we operate with juxtaposed immigration controls. What that means is that you clear into the European Union in Dover. And we had a whole program of work about making certain that we were ready for our our big, busy summer tour season, the first big tour season after the COVID. And we had plans in place. We installed new infrastructure. And regrettably, we were let down a bit on our, on our manning for the very start of that summer getaway. And that led to a bit of congestion. But we cleared everything, everybody who wanted to travel, and we cleared everything within inside of 48 hours. And then we operated normally for the rest of the summer because everybody was following the plan. I want to look at a couple of those regulations in a slightly more detail in a moment. Um, the, we're talking about a post-Brexit world with some of them. But first, we've heard earlier on this podcast about how the European economy is performing, including the UK economy, of course. There has been some positive data just lately. The, the inflation figures for both for the Eurozone and for the UK have come off slightly, slightly, but from a very low bar. I mean, they're still at near record highs. But how are you factoring in this economic backdrop of recession and high inflation and the cost of living crisis across Europe. How are you factoring that into your traffic projections for 2023? Are you expecting growth? Are you expecting a decline? What's things looking like on the cargo side? So on the cargo side, and Mike, you're absolutely right. We are so tightly correlated with economic prosperity through the Port of Dover. The supply chains that we support with this gateway it includes everything, manufacturing, perishables, foods, commodities, medicines, they all come through here. And geographically, about half of our traffic is destined north of London. So it really is nationwide. It is also a key gateway for Ireland exports to the European Union, where they'll, it's so-called land bridge, where they'll come on the land in Wales, drive down to Dover, and they get across to the continent. It's extremely effective. We've got a sizable trade out of Scotland with seafood and shellfish. And all of this is all really dependent upon it. So one of the things that we found is when there's an economic downturn, certainly we feel it, perhaps not as sharply as other routes, but we do feel it. But then when there's an economic upturn, we feel it faster here probably than other routes as well. 
I mean, you guys are really plugged into those really fast, um, just-in-time supply chains, aren't you, between the UK and the European Union. Can you just give us any more examples? I mean, one that I've covered in the past is that flower market. A lot of it comes over from, from the Netherlands. But can you give me any more examples about how intrinsically important you are to the functioning of those supply chains or, or examples of those supply chains that you're involved in that you follow yourself? Sure. Um, so when we were going through a lot of the stuff and thinking about and planning for Brexit, now one of the things that is really important is to understand what the economic impact might be of Brexit on the health, wealth, prosperity, success of the United Kingdom. So we spent a, a lot of time talking with government about the importance of these supply chains. So we support the automotive industry. So any of the manufacturing, the parts coming across, we support virtually all supermarkets of some form of their food that comes in, comes in through us. A lot of the building materials come in through us, certainly anything that is components related to the just-in-time or the manufacturing process. And indeed, sometimes these things go back and forth quite a bit as well, right? So it'll come back, get some value add in the UK and then be re-exported back to Europe. When there's seasonal commodities such as or just coming up from Spain, the vast majority of that comes through the short straits, which is what we call the routes between Dover and the French ports, and by the way, including the Eurotunnel, the train that goes along. So we've got a finger in all the pies, let's put it that way. The thing that we don't do so much of through here is like things like the bulk oils, right? So we don't see much of that. But if it's a you know cartons of cooking oil, then of course we'll get that across as well. And uh, this, yeah, the whole Brexit issue, anyone who's listened to this will know that there's been a lot of political strife between the EU and, and the UK. And I don't want to push you to get too political, but these Brexit regulations, just can you give me a few examples of the changes in rules that your customers have had to deal with in terms of that post-Brexit regulatory environment? And I think secondly as well, have you been flown in from the States? I know you've been over in the UK a long time, but is that just because the UK and the French can't get along? <laughs> uh, you're going to put me on the spot. Second bit first. You hear from my accent, I'm American from New York, the New York area, but I spent most of my adult life abroad and generally in the British Isles in the UK specifically. So I haven't been parachuted in just as a, as a, as a <laughs> diplomat. Now, some of the things that we've had as a result of Brexit. So first of all, knowing the criticality of the traffic that goes through Dover in the preparation for Brexit, we were working very closely with our government and continue to do so. And as a result of that, our government implemented a few things for us. So a brand new customs process called the so-called pre-lodgement model. And what that means is that the traffic doesn't stop in Dover, but rather it goes through the port. And then if it needs to be checked, it'll be checked at an inland facility. That is very different than how the traditional way of doing it, which was so-called temporary storage, much like a container port or an unaccompanied trailer port. So the imports would land and then they'd be wait to get released. The dock gate opens and then they can proceed into the market. Our model is different in that regard. Mainly if I give that a bit of context. So average inbound dwell time. In many container ports, when there isn't disruption or congestion, where we've seen the effects of that in some places, average inbound dwell time somewhere between, say, three and five days between the time when an import discharges and then it gets out of the dock gate. Our average inbound dwell time in the port of Dover is five minutes. From the point in time the cargo rolls off the ferry and it's out of the dock gate, just five minutes. So that means, again, coming back to the fluidity of the traffic being so important, we've got to make certain that we can clear the traffic out of the port. Now, the second thing the government did is they built an inland border facility just up the motorway from where we are now. So any of the inspections that need to get done, they get done in a purpose-built modern facility that the government invested in for that. And they did all this not because they like Port of Dover, but it is down to the criticality of the services 
and the supply chains that we support for the overall United Kingdom economic prosperity. Now, some of the things that will have impacted the supply chain is the increased customs paperwork and the filing requirements and the immigration requirements. That doesn't per se affect the Port of Dover specifically, but we do know that it has had an effect on processes up and down the supply chain. One of the business sectors that has grown quite a bit since Brexit is the freight agents, so the guys that do all the customs paperwork. And whilst the offices down here in Dover for a number of the freight agents have gotten quite small over the years, they've grown quite a bit because there's a lot more demand for their work. That's one of the few areas of the economy that's grown, uh, thanks to Brexit. <laughs> is that a little bit political from your host? Just for our international listeners, now there's, there's a difference between the import and the export regimes that following Brexit. One of the things that always has tickled me slightly during the COVID years is that supply chains have gone center stage, but this happened in the UK. It's gone mainstream, I should say. It happened in the UK sort of from 2016 onwards, where we've got headlines about customs declaration services and regimes and, and regulation. Can you just briefly explain what the difference is between the import rules and the export rules as it relates, I believe, to the UK customs declaration service? Is that correct? Yeah, it's not something that we as a port are directly involved in. That's more done between the importers and the exporters. The government, indeed, the ferry operators have, have a role to play in that as well. I think fundamentally, but what I can describe is fundamentally the bit chain was is before Brexit, it was just completely fluid. So as an example, to get you the immigration control post here in the port, on average before Brexit, it would take a truck zero seconds to get through that post. So not that anybody could be faster than zero seconds, I guess. Now it's, you know, between sort of 30 and 60 seconds. So it's a bit longer. We can translate that to the car traffic as well. So there has been an impact of it, but for us, for the port operations, we don't see it as much as the people further up the supply chain do. They're the ones that are managing these custom declarations and this is where the brokers come in and everything. Okay. Well, one, maybe this is something that you don't hear so much about as well then, because it's a little bit of the supply chain, but it's driver shortages, both in the UK and the EU. What happens at Dover when drivers aren't available both either at the port or further elsewhere in that supply chain? I mean, you mentioned earlier that you're on these very tight schedules. What sort of knock-on impact can that have on port operations? So the good news in Dover with our operating model, it has had zero impact. And the reason why I say that is because each and every bit of our traffic or a very, very small percentage is driver accompanied traffic. That means... When they get on the ferry, they've got a cab and they've got a driver with them on the whole journey. So they literally just drive off the ferry and then they go to their destination. But where it has had an impact is in the onward distribution. So whilst our traffic might be going to a regional distribution center and then it would get offloaded and then that, that truck would return, then it's the onward distribution from that regional distribution center that may be impacted by that. For, but for the Port of Dover traffic itself, because our operating model is a driver accompanied services, we haven't seen any impacts in the port operations as a result of the driver shortages. Thanks, Doug. Um, and finally, uh, you guys, I know you're doing your utmost to cut emissions. Did I hear you'd managed to cut emissions by 85% over the last decade? I mean, what does that mean, that number? And how have you done this? Yeah, so this is something that we're really proud of. So Dover being the premier gateway for supply chains between the United Kingdom and the European Union, we feel very strongly that we've got a leadership position and therefore we can help to decarbonize supply chains everywhere. That's why in May last year, we launched our sustainability agenda. And what we have set ourselves is an ambitious set of sustainability goals. 
the nearest term one is that we are going to be net carbon zero for scope one and two in the port operations by 2025. That's five years faster than the next fastest port in the UK, from my understanding. And it's equivalent to maybe one other port in Europe. And as you rightly said, we've reduced our carbon emissions. Well, actually, my updated statistics that I was reviewing yesterday, taking 2022 into account, it's about 95% we've reduced carbon emissions by since 2007. So by coming up with a plan of being net carbon zero by 2025, we've been executing this plan already for many years. How we go about doing that is we've installed photovoltaics across the port, so we generate our own electricity where we can. We've got our own renewable sources, replacing higher consumption electrical units with lower consumption ones, such as LED lighting. We have transitioned our entire landside fleet of vehicles to hydro-treated vegetable oil. And just in September this year, we transitioned all of our marine assets to the same thing. That has had a profound effect. Now, we still got some way to go. We're looking at some improvements on F gases and on mains gas supplies, about making some improvements there. But we're looking into things like ground and water sourced heat pumps and all that sort of stuff, because the tech is moving really quickly now. But it does give us a lot of confidence. But you know what, Mike? We're not stopping there. So the other thing that we've done is we have established a powerful coalition with an aim to secure the UK's first high-volume green shipping corridor between ourselves and France. In that, we've got our ferry operator, P&O, DFDS, Irish Ferries. We have our sister ports in France, Dunkirk, Calais. We've got the regional governments in France, the regional governments in the UK. We've got academic institutions. We've got technology providers. And all this is about establishing the UK's first green shipping corridor, which is looking to decarbonize supply chains on this high volume route. And if we get those processes right, my hope is that that can spread across other routes. Doug Bannister, CEO Port of Dover, thank you very much for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider and Zenitor, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon. 